In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Hail, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To you, God entrusted his only Son, and you, Mary, placed your trust. With you, Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too, show yourself a father and a guide in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage, and defend us from evil. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next piece of sacred music. This is much, much shorter than the first one, and this is directly uh, dedicated to St. Joseph. It is, again, a 21st century piece, and it is written by one of our Dominican fathers, uh, Father Joseph Martin Hagen. Father Joseph uh, actually is a graduate of my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame, and he studied composition there. He's also super, super devoted to St. Joseph. One of the things we tried to do when, during my time at the House of Studies was we had a lot of really talented musicians. And in addition to performing great sacred music in the liturgy, in addition to singing great sacred music in the liturgy, it's not a performance in the same way a stage performance would be, obviously. But we um, also tried to do some composition, and we tried to compose music for the propers. What do I mean by that? You know the church gives us texts for every entrance. There's an entrance antiphon. There's actually offertory antiphons. They're not even in the missal, but they're in the Latin form. And there are communion antiphons as well. And those are the pieces that the church directs us. So people often think, when I choose music for mass, I need to look at the themes in the gospel. You can do that. But the first place you should be looking is actually what the theme in what the church gives you for the introit, what they give you for the offertory, what they give you for the communion. Sometimes those are directly related to the gospel, other times tangentially related to the gospel. Anyway, we were trying to figure out some pieces, especially in, in comp composed music in English, and that would be fairly simple that a choir, you need a choir still, but a choir that maybe wasn't super professional. And so this is uh, the dream of St. Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. This is the communion antiphon for the feast of St. Joseph, and it was composed for us. Um, but again, it's something that people can use in parishes and that sort of thing. And it gets in English. It's uh, fairly short. It's under two minutes. And um, it's something that really does work well uh, for the feast day of St. Joseph. So again, 21st century music. This is also, this harmonically, you can tell it's 21st century, but it's much more straightforward than the Lordson. So here we go.
again, very, very simple piece for St. Joseph for that communion. Really well done, and I'm very, very proud, proud of my brothers who were able to compose things like this. Um, that was, by the way, Dominicans. Those were all Dominican priests. Now they're all priests. At that point, they were brothers and part of the group that I directed for years, five years, up in uh, Washington, D.C. I'd like to begin with this notion of the doubt of Joseph, this do not be afraid. This, so this music going right into what I want to talk about here now. Did, the question is, Saint, did St. Joseph really want to divorce Our Lady? And what does that mean? And what are some possible explanations for this passage in St. Matthew's Gospel? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been the Lord had spoken through by, by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had borne a son, and, she called his and he called his name Jesus. All right. Now, there are two sort of theories that surround the explanation of St. Joseph's, uh, uh, this so-called doubt of Joseph. The first part is he wanted her to put her away so she would not be subject to the law. And number two, he felt himself unworthy of such a mystery. Now, let's look at this first one for a second. Um, he wanted to put her away so that she would not be subject to the law. St. Joseph was a just man. But what does it mean to be a just man? means you're obedient to the law. So if he were a just man, why would he not want her to be subject to the law? Think about it. If the Blessed Mother really had committed adultery, if this is the reason why she was pregnant, wouldn't Joseph, if he were a truly just man, say, you know, I'm zealous for the law. I'm going to put her up so she will be killed because that is the punishment. I mean, so shouldn't he do this? I, um, uh, but only if only he thought Mary was innocent would he not want to expose her to the law. So I think that the first one that he just wanted to put her away out of the way is not correct. I think that it's, the reason that he is called a just man and not wanting to expose her to the law is because he thinks she was innocent, not guilty. He thought she were innocent, was innocent. And so he didn't want to expose this mystery. So I think we're looking at the second theory then, that he didn't feel himself worthy. But how did he understand the mystery? This is where it gets a little bit complicated. And this is speculation on my part. This is total speculation on my part, um, but I'm going to throw it out there. Again, this is Josephology. This is stuff that has not been completely defined, so if I'm wrong, I humbly submit to the church's authority. However, the question is this. Did Joseph go with Mary on the visitation to visit Elizabeth? Think about it. Okay, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, anybody ever been to the Holy Land? And you know the distance, right? Okay, the distance between Nazareth and Ein Kerem, which is where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived, is about 90 miles, right? And Mary is a teenage girl. 
Are you going to allow a teenage girl to travel by herself? Oh, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. From Nazareth down there? No. Right? These are not just, you know, she's not taking, you know, Uber with a safety, you know, feature on it. Right? I mean, she's, she's, she's going to be through dangerous lands. She needs, you know, did she go with St. Anne and St. Joachim? St. Joachim probably was dead by that point. Did she go with St. Anne? Maybe. Did they have a guardian with them? Maybe St. Joseph going along? I, I don't know. But the point being is, I think we can literally ask that question. He's not in Scripture. It does, the Scripture is silent on the issue. It doesn't say who accompanied Mary. But then we have to go to an even deeper question about this too. Um, and the deeper question is this. Why did Mary do the visitation in the first place? Anyone have any ideas about that? Why, why did Mary go to visit Elizabeth in the first place? Why do you think she would do that? Angel didn't, no, Angel didn't say. Angel announced to her that it was going to happen. That she, well, she announced that Elizabeth was pregnant. And how far along was she? Six months. Six months. She, your, your cousin Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. Okay. Um, and, of course, Elizabeth is kind of in hiding. Uh, but so, so why did Mary go to visit Elizabeth? Yeah. Is it a custom to have um, other women around your family to come help you? When you're oh, to come help you? To come help you with what? Um, the birth, okay, and, and, and the new baby, right? That's, so, I mean, uh, people right now, so, um, Abby, can I pick on you for a second? So, Ab Abby's pregnant. When, when the baby comes, are you going to have someone to come help you? <laughs> Most likely, yes. I would probably need that. <laughs> exactly, okay. So, what's the problem, though, with that in this scenario? How long, how long is, well, they're both pregnant, right? But how long, far along is Elizabeth? Six months. How long does Mary stay? Three months, this is a problem. She takes off right when the baby's born. Are, would that be helpful, Abby? She'd be like, oh, hey, you got a new baby. I'm going to leave. All right, so this, this it, 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 and I've heard a lot of people who want to sort of demystify the scriptures say this. They say, no, it's great because here's Mary. You know, even though she's new pregnant, she's going to be so helpful and go down and visit Elizabeth. But then you run into this, you're like, but wait a minute. She left right when the baby was born. What's going on there? I think there's something much more deep, the, deeply theologically going on here. Um, and it goes back to who Mary is. And again, it's prefigured in the Old Testament. And I think this is what St. Joseph sees. Now follow me on this. Follow me on the ball on this. Okay. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and she's there for three months. Okay, let's talk about Mary. Mary is often perceived as the Ark of the Covenant. But let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant for a second. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Does anybody remember? Ten Commandments, right. So the place of the law, what else? A jar of manna, right. And what else? Rod of Aaron, right. So what you have, you have the Word, right, and, and so the, in the Ten Commandments. And you have manna, which prefigures what? The Eucharist, right, exactly. And the staff of Aaron, which represents Christ, right, which is the ruling over the, the, the shoot that will come out of Jesse, which will, uh, you know, will govern the world with a rod of iron, right. So you have all this in the Ark of the Covenant. And also, we've all seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? What do you not do? Don't look at it, right? Don't open the Ark, right? Don't, don't mess with the Ark. Okay, so... So what does David do? So this going back to the Old Testament, where this is in 2 Samuel. So King David, he's vanquished the enemies, and he's taken over the city of Jerusalem. And this is going to be his capital. He's a, his son is eventually going to build a temple there and put the ark in there. But King David wants to move the ark. The ark has been in a tabernacle, right? It's been in this tent, sort of following the people around as they're migratory. And he wants to move it from that tent into the city of Jerusalem. Now, the ark was considered very sacred, right? And we all know this. And when you moved the ark, you had to follow certain liturgical prescriptions. You were supposed to carry it on foot. Certain men were supposed to do it. They were supposed to be purified. They were supposed to carry it on poles. 
So David doesn't follow the liturgy, though. He doesn't follow the liturgical rubrics. There's a warning to all priests. Don't pull this stuff, priests. Don't always follow the liturgy. So what happens? He puts it on an ox cart. He said this will be faster, right? So he sticks it on an ox cart, and it's moving, and it starts to tilt like this backwards and forwards. And what happens? One, one, of, the, one of the drivers, he sticks out his hand. He says, I'm going to steady the ark so it doesn't fall down. And what happens? Yeah, he gets zapped, right? Liturgical offenses were published, uh, punished much more swift, uh, severely in the Old Testament. Okay, so he dies. And David freaks out. And David freaks out. I mean, obviously he's seeing this. And so he says, we're going to take a time out here. And David says, and David was afraid of the Lord on that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obedidim the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedidim the Gittite for three months. Okay, so Joseph was a descendant of David. He knew the stories of his ancestors really well. He knew who his ancestors were, and he knew what they did, both their sins and their glory, right? So Elizabeth and Mary. So Mary shows up at the visitation. And when Mary heard the greeting of Elizabeth, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she explained in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Remember King David, Who am I that the ark of my God should come to me? And the ark remained there three months. Elizabeth, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary remained there three months. What was Mary carrying within her womb? The word and the sacraments and the one who would shepherd the people of Israel. Manna, stone tablets, and the rod of iron prefiguring Christ. Mary was the true ark, right? And so I think that's really what happened there. But then you have St. Joseph. If he were there, but even if he were not there and he maybe heard the story, he was a man, again, descendant of David. I think he probably knew these stories. He knew the scriptures. And he realized, oh, you don't put your hand to the ark of the Lord. You don't put out your hand to the ark of the Lord. He realized he was unworthy of that mystery. And I think it's because of that that he just said, I, I can't do this. There's no way. I mean, I can't be married to this woman. She's the ark of the covenant. She, she literally is carrying in there. This is the fulfillment of all the things. So, I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Is that too out there? Might be too out there. But it's interesting because, I mean, it all does fit together, and it provides a reason why St. Joseph maybe didn't want to put out his... And it also, I think, explains, certainly, why Mary went to visit Elizabeth. Not just for caring and sharing, not just for helping, but because she was truly the Ark of the Covenant. Yes? In full support of the theory is that he would be pondering that uh, the Trinity did not have him at the, at the Annunciation. If he's wondering why you know, Mary, the angel Gabriel, but they chose not to have the Annunciation with him present. Uh, interesting, that's right. Yes, he was not present at the Annunciation. Yes, for whatever reason, God did not do that. God spoke to him through the dream. Which he would be thinking about, or I would be thinking about. Right. If you all are fans of The Chosen, like I am, um, you may have also seen part of their Christmas episode, which did have one theological problem. But, uh, but and nonetheless, there was this dialogue between Mary and Joseph where they both talked about their angels. And my angel said, do not be afraid. Yours said to also, do not be afraid. Very, very beautiful scene. All right. Really quickly then, uh, before we get to the litany of St. Joseph, just a quick comparison 
And finally, to round out this whole thing of Joseph and Herod, two scriptural figures and two very much who ran on parallel tracks, but also two that were completely different men. Um, they lived at the same time. Interesting. Joseph, what was he? He was the descendant of Abraham, the genealogy in Matthew that we just talked about, but he was descendant of David the king. He was by rightful heir, right? You know, one of the descendants of the, uh, uh, he was of the royal lineage. He had more right to the kingship than King Herod. King Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't even a Jewish person. So what, what do we have to say about this? Um, well, Joseph, the descendant of King David, the greatest of the kings of Israel, he ruled well. Uh, he was just and wise, and he ruled well, like I said, in general. When he sinned, he made up for his sins big time with penance and fasting, right? His most famous response to um, his sins, Psalm 51, the Miserere, which we often pray during Lent. Be merciful, Lord. Have mercy on me, God, for I have sinned. Uh, God promised to be a father to him and to keep his dynasty forever. So the house of David, there was this promise made. His son Solomon was one of the wisest rulers in all Israel, and he expanded the nations to its greatest territorial height. Right? So this house of David, really sort of a dynastic thing, both material as well as spiritually. And he also built the temple. Uh, he made a place for God's presence to dwell among his people in Jerusalem, and it was an incredible temple uh, that had, the lights had never been seen before. And God's presence, his Shekinah in, in Hebrew, dwelt in the temple with the people. However, Solomon, Solomon fell to pagan practices. Why? His foreign wives, right? And he began to offer incense at all these foreign gods. Nonetheless, God kept the kingdom of Judah as a remnant for the house of David that royal line of kings, and it endured until the year 586 B.C. And we know what happened then, right? The Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, it was, uh, Jerusalem was sacked, and um, the, king, uh, the descendants of David were shipped off to Babylon as slaves, right? And so many of these royal descendants were all pushed over to uh, Babylon. Why? You don't want the royal family hanging out you know, in the, the former royal family hanging out in the place where you're now occupying, because, of course, they could be the locus, right, of rebellion against you. Uh, after the Babylonians, there were two more dynasties, the Persians. Now, the Persians let the majority of the Jewish people actually return to their homeland in the Promised Land, and there they rebuilt the temple, but on a much smaller scale. But who did not return? The descendants of David. Again, the Persians, okay with them rebuilding the temple, a little bit leery about David's descendants wandering around with these people, lest they rebel. Then we had the most creepy dynasty of all after them, um, Alexander the Great. Uh, he conquered a ton of the world, but then he died very young, and his kingdom was divided up by his generals, who started the fight against each other. And uh, one of those descendants of the generals was Antiochus IV, the worst king, who not only Hellenized, but literally tried to destroy the Jewish religion. If you ever read the book of Maccabees at the beginning, right, it's pretty horrific what he did. They banned circumcision. Women who circumcised their babies, they were hanged, and their babies were hanged from their necks as well as a, as a punishment, a very public punishment. Also, if you read that, that um, a lot of women talk to me about this. Um, there's that scene where the seven sons are being forced to eat pork or, or, or die, and they're all being tortured in front of their mother, and their mother's encouraging them, be zealous of the law and keep going and be martyred. Um, eventually... The Jews have enough of this, and they rise up, and against all odds, they beat them, right? They beat the Greeks, and this is with uh, Judas Maccabeus, right? The revolutionary um, there, and they recover a bunch of the land around Galilee, as well as the area in the Holy Land down by Jerusalem. And uh, 
this, uh, they, in there, they, um, they start to bring back in this independent, newly independent sort of Jewish state, they bring back a lot of those older descendants of King David. So the Davidic line moved from Babylon at that point back to, this is around the year 100 BC, moved back to the region of Galilee. And there they established two villages. One was called Kokba, which meant village of the star. And the other one was called Nazareth, which meant village of the shoot. Right? So these two places, Kokba and Nazareth, were established up by the Sea of Galilee. Galilee had never it had been Galilee of the Gentiles. It had been more of a pagan territory, but now it was being settled by Jewish people. Um, however, the Jewish people at that time were rocked with divisions, and this is leading up to the time of Christ. These included the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. These are the people who lived out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Out of the Dead Sea. And this meant that the political situation was always tenuous. Now, the kings at this time of the Maccabean Revolt, who became kings after this of the house uh, of, of Israel, were not of the house of David. They were not Davidic kings. They were of the Hasmonean family, this Hasmonean dynasty. And many of them were real creeps. One of them, Alexander Janaeus, who was trying to pit fa these factions in Judaism against each other. He changed the way that Jewish sacrifices were offered in the temple. You're supposed to pour water over the altar. He poured water on his own feet, saying that he was now the new altar. Stuff like this symbolic, but it really caused problems. And the result of him doing this was there was a bloody civil war. And to punish the Pharisees who were against him, this Alexander Janaeus, uh, king, again, of the Jewish people, ordered 800 of them to be crucified. Right? So creepy guy. In the year 67 AD, there was another civil war, this time fighting about who was to be the successor of the Hasmonean kings. In the year 8063, the Romans, who were the new world power, were sick and tired of this garbage. Why? Because the Holy Land is at a crossroads, right? Egypt is down here. That's the granary of the Roman Empire. You've got the Persian Empire out here in the east, which are always causing trouble. You've got Syria, which is a major fertile area up here on the north, which can sometimes become unstable. And the Romans wanted that area really shorn up. They did not want crazy people, and they did not want wars going on there, because the Persians, the Egyptians, all sorts of uh, shenanigans could take place. So the Romans decided they needed to intervene. So they intervened in this civil war. They brought in their uh, armies, and they propped up one of the uh, claimants of the king. And at that point, they made a peace. And the king that they put in was named Herod. Now, the Romans were now de facto overlords of Israel, even though Herod still had the title king of the Jews. And they put this on the throne, the usurper, Herod the Edomite, from what is now the land of uh, what is now called Petra. Uh, if you cross the Jordan River here and you go over into the kingdom of Jordan and you go to the very south are the ruins of the city of Petra, which are known especially to us through what? What movie? Yeah, the Last Crusade, that's right. The, the treasury, the, the, if you watch the Indiana Jones movie, that figures there. They, sit, they call it, I think, Alexandretta, but it's actually, it's actually Petra, right? And it's the treasury in Petra, which um, if you go there today, you can still see it. Uh, it's an iconic place. We all take our pictures there when you go there. Um, so Herod was this usurper, but he became Jewish. He converted to Judaism, and he married one of the Hasmoneans to try to legitimize himself. He also tried to win the favor of the people by embarking on a huge diplomatic campaign to increase trade and bolster the economy, which he did. He made the, the Jewish kingdom perhaps the most prosperous it ever was. 
because it had Roman favor and Roman protection. Also, the economy was booming. More trade came through than ever. And he built this glorious temple to replace that little tiny temple that had been replaced Solomon's temple. So he builds one that's going to be even bigger than Solomon's temple. And he also goes on this massive building campaign, not just because he wants to win the favor of the people, but also because he is a paranoid psychopath. Okay, so um, Herod does this. Uh, he... Um, he, he builds these massive fortresses. One is, the most famous one is the one at Masada, which is during the uh, Jewish revolt later on against the Romans that the, they held out the longest. Um, now, all of this, Herod also learned about these Jewish people that he converted to their faith, and he learned about the prophecies of what? The Messiah. That there was one coming who was going to be the favored one, and he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Look, and he started looking around. Hey, look what I did. I restored this kingdom. It's prospering economically, got the favor of all the real people. I might be um, the Messiah myself. So he begins minting coins with what? Kokhba and Nazareth with the star and the shoot of himself. So he's looking to be like even stylized as a Messiah. He's also unstable mentally, like I said. As a younger man, he was prone to lots of bouts of depression and even contemplated suicide. But the suicidal depression gave way to maniacal rage when he was older. This is also ex exhibited in his own paranoia. He's constantly feeling threatened in his kingship. And he even built large fortresses, like I said, and he also regularly purged his advisors because he was worried about plots against him. And this is even worse. He actually has a few of his sons executed because he was paranoid that they would revolt. And finally, his favorite wife, whom he actually loved, he went into a rage and thought that she was plotting against him and had her executed. Real, really creepy guy. Okay, so we think about that. King Herod, who is this usurper, he's a false king, but he styles himself a real king. He's a foreigner, right? And by the way, the, the whole thing with him killing his wife, Herod was such a creep that Julius Caesar actually commented, he said, because remember, Herod was also, he was a faithful Jewish guy, right? He would refuse to eat pork, right? Absolutely would not do that, but he was going to kill his wife. This shows how messed up things were at the time. So Julius Caesar said it's better to be Herod's pig than his wife. Because it's, it's safer, right? It's safer to be Herod's pig than his wife. Um, okay, so you have Herod with this usurper guy, this guy who is coming in from the foreign lands. He is this pagan at heart. He converts to Judaism, but it's like a false Judaism. He styles himself as the Messiah. He is the king, but he's not the real king. He has his family killed. In contrast to this, you have St. Joseph who is actually of the house of David, who actually has a rightful place, who actually is someone who is the father, in many ways, of the Messiah. And he is faithful to his family. He's the one who upholds it. And he is the true sort of, he is the example of what a king should be. And so you have these two examples, right? And these two people who are sort of going on parallel tracks, but at the same time, just so widely disparate. And I know that we're getting a little bit further from biblical stuff here because Herod is only mentioned a few times in the Bible. By the way, the whole notion of Herod being the Messiah, there were actually some Jewish people who went along with that, a few, a few people. They were called the Herodians. And that party persisted for a long time, actually thinking that King Herod had been the Messiah. Okay, I know that we're also, like I said, that we're prescinding far from Scripture, getting into a lot of secular history here as well. But I do this as an example to show up the, you know, the, this true example in the glory of St. Joseph versus this creep who at the same time took on a lot of errors that would be like the false St. Joseph. Um, and I want to use this as a jumping point to our final thing, which is the litany of St. Joseph. But before we go into that, 
Any last questions? Or any questions? I've heard that um, one of the reasons, too, that Mary went, you know, the whole leaving of the bowl with, um, with uh, John the Baptist was to bless, mm. you know, John the Baptist. Well, well, the presence. That's right. I think I read that in the Colors of Mary. There, there's a theological opinion. There's a theological opinion that St. John the Baptist was born without original sin because he was sanctified in his mother's womb at that moment. He was not conceived without original sin, but he was sanctified in his mother's womb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they named Nazareth the Village town. Of yeah. Was that based on the scripture? A shoot shall sprout, but they did it not knowing Jesus would be. Right. But at the same time, I mean. The house of David is the shoot of Jesse, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they definitely could do that. that. That was part of the tradition, right? That they were a shoot of, of Jesse, mm -hmm. and that's from the prophecy of Isaiah. Right. But not knowing that, of course, Christ would be the shoot, you know, and that's Mary the shoot. That's yeah. And also Kokhba, the star, right? They didn't know about that. The star, the star yes. Mm -hmm. So how did they know that King Herod had all these, like, mental issues? Oh, because he's big in secular history, too. Like, th there's a lot of writing on Herod. We know quite a bit about him. Because, like I said, he ran into the he befriended Rome, and we have a lot of Roman history from the time period. He came in in the year sixty three, and he died around the year four B.C. Which is why this is one of the reasons why there's debate over where the birth of Christ if if they got the original calculations wrong. Right. So when what year was Jesus born? Probably around four B.C. Although. I, I don't find it real useful to always trumpet that around, the, the distinction, because it's like Christ was born at this time, right? And so if the original monk made an error in his calculations, so what? The point is God entered into history. Right. Yes. So was, was Joseph born in Bethlehem? So Joseph's of the house of David in the lineage of Bethlehem. It doesn't say where he was born. Because the census was sending you back to where you were born, right? Well, or to where your, your house family was from, Yeah. He might have been born there. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, that's speculative. Yeah. Yes. Where did we land on where, why she left, why Mary left as soon as the baby was born? That's just what it said in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> or why just why didn't she help them? I mean, she may have helped. I mean, she might have stayed for a few days. I don't know. The the scriptures don't say that. But the point is, is that scriptures have those three months, and I think the three months is more symbolic even than the whole helping issue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah maybe it's premature. <laughs> Good than that too, but but the the point being is that the whole point of her going there was not just this sort of mainly earthly thing. It was to fulfill the scriptures. It was to fulfill this messianic prophecy, yeah, and to show that she is the true Ark of the Covenant. So God arranged it this way. All right, let's move on to the litany of Saint Joseph, and this is sort of our wrap up as we move into the holy hour and confessions time. We'll end up by praying the litany of Saint Joseph, but. It's very interesting when we talk about litanies, Joseph amongst the saints, and this goes back to his th position theologically, and this is what we're going to talk about with regard to these final titles. Um, we have a litany of St. Joseph. We have a litany of the saints. We have a litany of Loretto and some other litanies around the Blessed Mother. But we honor all the saints, but a lot of the saints don't have their own litanies, um, which is just a little sort of interesting th factor. But it shows that Joseph also is important with regard um, to the saints. And again, so theological sort of distinction here, uh, follow me on this one. Uh, the, the theologians talk about the type of honor we give to God and the saints. And we use these words. The highest honor that we can give, or the honor of adoration, we call latria. And that's due to God alone. This is, this is some scary sounding words, but don't worry. 
Latria, highest honor due to God alone. That's the honor of adoration. The honor due to the saints is dulia. And dulia means reverence, right? Reverence, and that's the type of honor we give to the saints. So dulia for saints, latria for God alone. Now, amongst these dulias, we have two special types of dulias, the, the honors due to the saints. Our Blessed Mother, the theologians have always spoken of hyperdulia. Hyperdulia, which means that she is the highest of the revered, right? So we have latria, which is uh, God alone, dulia for the saints, and hyperdulia for the Blessed Mother, highest uh, revered. But then there's also been recently, more recently, uh, talking about a, a dulia for St. Joseph, protodulia. Protodulia, which means the first of the revered. So after the hyperdulia, which is the highest, we have the first of the revered, protodulia for St. Joseph. Why first revered? Well, this is, again, coming out of the 19th century. Pope Leo XIII, who I think is a really awesome pope, a really great pope of the rosary, also a great pope of St. Joseph. He's most known, though, for Catholic social teaching, right? Rerum Novarum, the first great social encyclical of the Catholic Church. But he actually said that the honor due to St. Joseph is higher than the angels, even, because his conjugal bond with the Blessed Mother in the Incarnation. Even though this conjugal bond did not disturb Mary's virginity, it was, in fact, a real marriage, which I want to move on to this, this, this final area here of um, when we talk about St. Joseph and some of his titles. St. Joseph, most chaste and chaste guardian of the Virgin. And this is an interesting time that we can actually start to try to give an answer to. Was he young or old? Was St. Joseph young or old? Now, the tradition... The tradition, mainly in art and in music, often says St. Joseph was old. There's, there's an old uh, carol called the Cherry Tree Carol. And it says, Joseph was an old man, and an old man was he when he married Mary in the land of Galilee. Right, it's kind of a dumb song. Anyway, uh, the, the point being is that St. Joseph is often portrayed as an older man. And I think this is done out of a reverence to the Blessed Mother talking to protect her virginity. Although I do have to say, I hear confessions of older men sometimes. It, it, they're still, I mean, we're still men, even at an old age as well. So um, the church does not take a stance on this. And like I said, there's uh, a lot of uh, speculation, especially to try to protect our blessing that he was older. But by the way, the scriptures are silent on this. But they might give some evidence to the fact that he might have been young. So St. God willing soon, St. Fulton Sheen, uh, but Fulton Sheen, God willing soon, blessed, uh, speculated he was a big champion that he, St. Joseph, was young. And St. Joseph did this because he said, I mean, St. Fulton Sheen said this because he really felt that St. Joseph made a great sacrifice. Here's a young man in the prime of his life, married, engaged to the most beautiful girl in the world, right? Which Mary must have been the most beautiful girl in the world because she brought forth the most beautiful thing in the world. That's my Mariology, sorry. But St. Joseph, and then at the same time realizing, I'm going to have a special type of marriage with her. It's going to be a marriage where we're not going to know the conjugal bond. I'm going to have a child. It's not going to be mine. But I'm going to still, he's going to still be my real son. How is this going to work? So what is the scriptural evidence, though, that it might be that St. Joseph was young? Of all people, you know who brought this up was Mother Angelica. She made it famous. Because what did she say? Old men don't walk to Egypt. <laughs> According to Google... Nazareth is 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So you had to walk all the way down there. Now, if you go from Bethlehem to Egypt to like the closest spot on the Egyptian border, it's at least 40 miles. And the journey from the closest spot in Egypt back to Nazareth was at least 120 miles. We do not know where he went inside of Egypt. He might have gone probably beyond the border town, right? But none, nonetheless, 
I mean, we're talking, you know, walking at least 120 miles back. Doesn't sound like an old man to me, right? This is going to undertake a journey like this. At least not an old, decrepit man who is no longer, you know, as worried about his interest in girls. Um, I, I really do believe in this the part that he was young. Now, I, I, I want to be careful here. I'm from California, and I mentioned this once, and one of our, our older brothers accused me of ageism, right? That's a, a thing in California that you often get accused of all sorts of isms. You're guilty of ageism. Oh, sorry. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to. I know that old people can walk. And certainly, and old people can walk long things. Old people can walk marathons. I, I'm in total agreement. I'm just saying this could be speculation. Remember, this is before good health care. This is before good elder care, et cetera. St. Joseph had a real and true marriage, but it was a special marriage, like I said, called a Josephite marriage, and it still kept the, const, uh, the conjugal bond. This is so needed now. Joseph, most chaste and chaste guardian of the virgin because of our lack of chastity in the world, right? People walk around with these in their, in their pockets, which have become, for most people, or for many people, a pornography machine that basically they carry around in their pockets. I mean, especially dealing with the young. In our orderly pornographied world today, we need men who really can respect women and not just look at them as a collection of body parts. As Pope St. John Paul II said, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, but that it shows too little. Why? It just shows body parts. It does not show a person. And we're even called to marital chastity, which is a real problem today. And I'm called to celibate chastity. And there's such a thing as, yes, as marital chastity. All you men who are married, you have one more woman than I do, right? And so we have to be chaste in thought, mind, and deed with your wife. Joseph, most obedient. I think this is a real issue, too, because most people think that obedience is a real problem. They think obedience limits freedom. You see this all the time, where obedience is a problem, right? Especially in our contemporary world, um, where people think this is an issue. They, they say, how can you take this vow of obedience? So a number of years ago, uh, I was helping one of our brothers learn how to play the organ. Most of our brothers come in without organ experience, but they want to learn how to play the organ so they can play for the divine office and for church. But they usually have enough piano. So I say, okay, learn how to play the piano, learn how to play the organ. But the problem with this is organists, in addition to playing the notes on the page, also have to do what? We have to improvise. We're one of the last sort of classical, um, classically trained people that have to improvise. Why? Well, you know, if you come in, especially if you're a big church like we have in San Francisco, maybe the procession's getting to the, uh, to the altar. You still have more. Father has to continue the incensing around the altar. Okay, so there, there, there needs to be more music, right? At the offertory, the choir gets done with their offertory piece, and you've still got more action to go. The organist has to cover. And so one of our brothers is asking me, okay, can you please teach me how to improvise? I said, sure. So we sat down, and I said, okay, let's take out a piece of chant. So we took it out. I said, okay, how can you harmonize the first note? And he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, what are the rules? And what are the ways you can harmonize that first note? Well, I said, well, how can we harmonize the overall thing in terms of uh, tertian harmony? Well, I, uh, so we started talking about, oh, you could use this chord, you could use this chord, and this chord leads to this chord, which leads to this chord. Or you could start with this chord if you thought about it, this tonality, which can go. And his eyes started to glaze over. And finally he said, I think in order to improvise, you have to literally know like all the rules of harmony before you start. And I said, yeah. Not only that, you have to be so obedient to those rules that actually they just come out of your fingers, right? You don't even think about them anymore because you know them so well. They're habituated in you. This is what obedience does. When we're obedient to the moral law, when we're obedient to the laws of God, far from stifling us, once we really learn how to do it, it gives us freedom to create something new. Just as for the musician, my obedience to the laws of harmony allows me to improvise and to create something new and beautiful and free for God.
And so I think in our, in our world where people see obedience as such an awful thing, we can say, no, actually, by me being obedient to the moral law, by me being obedient to the truth, actually, I'm more free, and I can do something beautiful for God. Uh, if, we th if we worry about the, guard, uh, the, the, the rules so much, though, it's kind of like this. When I, you all don't have mountains like we do in California. But when I go to the mountains, what do they have on the side of the road? Guardrails, right? And those guardrails say, don't cross there, you'll die, right? Same thing with us with the moral law. It's like the guardrails. But our society gets so focused on the guardrails. It's, it's like if I said, um, I went up to Lake Tahoe. I took a trip up to Lake Tahoe. And somebody said, oh, how was the trip? And I said, it was great. I didn't smash into one guardrail. It was great. <laughs> no, the lake was great. That was my goal. Same thing with the moral life. How is your moral life going? Oh, I didn't commit one mortal sin. Well, no, my moral life means I'm growing more in love with my spouse. Or I'm growing more in love with God. Right? Obedience to the law, we don't even notice the guardrails after a while. They're just there to help us in case we fall. Two more. Foster father, the son of God, zealous defender of Christ, head of the holy family, and glory of domestic life, pillar of families. St. Joseph and fatherhood. Now, we often talk about St. Joseph being the foster father of Jesus. However, was Joseph in a real way the father of Jesus? We often speak about the foster fatherhood because we want, we want to preserve our blessed mother's, right, her integrity. We also want to make very clear theological distinctions. But am I a father? Yesterday, I spent a, uh, all day in the high school here, JP2, and I had to go, every class, I had to talk about the fact that what do we look for in a good priest? What do we look for in a good priestly candidate? The ability to be a husband and father. Because the ability that makes a man a good husband and father also would make him a good priest, right? Because what does a priest have to be? Father to everybody and a spouse to the church. And if he's not that way, if he doesn't have that capacity, he's going to be a crummy priest. And we've seen plenty of those, right? And so we have this need for fatherhood these days. And I think this is where we can look at St. Joseph. Some things a boy learns from well from his father. Um, my mom uh, was good at ball, sports that dealt with balls, but my father was not. My dad liked to hike, he liked to swim, and he liked to go running. Guess what I like to do? Hike, swim, run, right? I can't do ball sports, although I like to watch them. Uh, it, it's just something. And also, I think religion is one of these things, too. We learn about God, especially as men, from our fathers. When Jesus experienced the love of God the Father in his human nature, I really believe he experienced that through St. Joseph. Also, the way that we express ourselves, our mannerisms, right, are often mimicking the Father. And I think Jesus, in his human nature, often mimics St. Joseph. So if we see the lines of Jesus, his actions in the scriptures, how much of that came from his mimicking of St. Joseph, especially as he was a young kid? Obviously, I'm going to say Jesus is perfect, right? He, so he didn't learn in the same way we do in a certain sense. But at the same way, at the same time, I still believe that he is getting some stuff from St. Joseph. St. Joseph is a universal father, and I think this also can help really correct what's a big problem in our lives. Um, many people out there I've found recently are de dealing with a father wound. What is that? That's, that our society is so messed up that men don't know how to be men. They don't know how to be fathers anymore. Sorry, guys, we got to man up a little bit, right? And the thing about this is when we have this father wound, we need it healed so that we know how to be better men. Now, thanks be to God, I did have a good father. But for those who maybe are trying to understand the fatherhood, go to Joseph, right? Those words, Pharaoh, go to Joseph. We all have a father. If St. Joseph is really, in a certain sense, the father of Jesus... 
and we're all brothers and sisters of Jesus, then of course we all have Mary as our mother, right? She's the universal mother. We all Catholics would say that. But St. Joseph is also our father. So we can say Holy Father St. Joseph in a real way. And finally, oh, sorry, one, two more, really fast. Two more really fast. Number one, patron of the church and protector of Holy Church. I really wanted to bring this up because the church is a mess, right? We need to pray for the church. We need to seriously pray for the church. Um, the church is a mess. We've seen this in scandal after scandal, right? We see the fatherhood of priests and bishops. Not, we see what we often see, bureaucrats and administrators other than real fathers, right? And I think this is a real disaster whenever, and priests are told this right now when we're coming out of seminary, you're going to have to be like CEO of a big corporation in your parish. Okay, well, that's nice, but a priest, a priest is not a CEO. He's a father, right? He's a shepherd. But when we're told this over and over again, we do need to help heal this. We need to learn how to be fathers, but we also need to maybe find good business people that we can trust who can do a lot of this business administration for us so that we can truly be fathers. Uh, we saw this during the lockdowns, by the way, which, sidebar, the church should never have stopped the sacraments. I, I know I don't have any control of that. We never should have. We didn't know what we were doing, maybe, but, but you saw what priests who really love their fatherhood, would. they were like, I've got to figure out something to do. And, and it bothered so many of us. I mean, I was thinking, should I just flee the Dominicans and like live in somebody's basement so I could at least be celebrating Mass for a few people? I mean, things like this were crossing your head. You're like, how can I do this? Um, what I ended up doing was I would go to people's backyards and give communion. Right? I'd be like, hey, how's it going? Is everybody okay? It's, and things like this. And try, and, or people's backyards and hear confessions. People's backyards and give anointings. Um, and then I would bring out a bottle of wine. We'd have a glass of wine after that was done. Uh, so a little celebration, too. Um, but I think as we move, the, the lockdowns aside, it's, it's something of a bigger issue. We're moving from an age that's the age of Christendom to an apostolic age. What do I mean by that? Institutional Christianity more and more is becoming fringe. And oftentimes we spend so much time trying to support institutions which may be failing, right? Institutions which may, and I'm not against institutions. We have a lot of them in the West that are, that are thriving. Uh, but at the same time, we have to think often outside of the box. Instead of this Christendom age, when everybody's pretty much Catholic and I can just be the priest administrator of my parish and come and say mass, make sure that I'm the nice CEO that the money keeps flowing in, uh-uh. We're going to have to be new and innovative in the way that we go out and get the message out. I know you in the South do this, right? Here at this Newman Center, everybody's committed to that. We need St. Joseph more than ever as the patron of the universal church to really help out, especially inspire our priests and brothers to not be bureaucrats or administrators, but true fathers. Finally, terror of demons. Okay, we know this anecdotally that he's the terror of demons. People ask them, why is he that? We know it anecdotally from exorcists because they talk about when they mention St. Joseph and exorcisms, demons flip out. But why is that theologically? Well, one of the speculative answers that people give is this. Because of his humility. Think about this. Satan's number one issue is lack of humility. Satan's response, right? The one thing Satan, Satan's an angel. He understands all the things except for one. He can't understand why God loves us. You understand we're lower than the angels. And not only that, God ordered angels to serve us. And Satan's response to this is, what? What do you mean serve? This is a hierarchy of being. God is the highest, then angels, then man, then doggies, then trees, then rocks and things. But what are you doing, Get, commanding the angels to serve man? Why would you love them? They're finite. They're, 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 they're these, you know, they have free will. They can do all sorts of bad things. Uh, why would you do that? 
Satan never understood that. So, of course, Satan's famous response, non serviam, I will not serve. And this is his ultimate goal. This is his ultimate act of rebellion. That's the reason why Satan fell. He would not serve. Satan does not understand humility. St. Joseph, the most humble of all the saints, doesn't speak, doesn't take the first place. Even though he is the descendant of King David, doesn't usurp the throne. He just does what God calls him to do. He's the donkey, right? He just gets, he brings in Jesus and gets out of the way. The most humble of the saints, therefore the greatest, therefore also the terror of the forces of evil. And again, brothers and sisters, like I said at the beginning, evil is certainly around today and big in our world, big in our church, and it infects all sorts of people who, you know, just want to fight against the gospel. And so we must be really steadfast against that and invoke St. Joseph, please help, especially in these difficult times. With that said, can we please, um, actually let's do this. We'll pray the, um, the Litany of St. Joseph at the beginning of adoration. How about that? Can we do that, we'll do that as, our, as, our, as our prayer in adoration? I'm going to give people a break here for a second, but before break, any final questions before we jump into adoration? Then we'll have adoration and confessions for about an hour and then lunch. Yes. You mentioned exorcisms. So, like, do you have any examples of like what the demons may have said or done, and to the name of Joseph, and also what part of do you know what the priest, what the exorcist says when you mention? So, I, 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 I'm not privy to that kind of granular level. All I know is that my exorcist friends tell me when they mention Saint Joseph, the demons float. By the way, they also when they mention Saint Jacinta of Fatima, demons freak out. I think that's because, again, St. Joseph's purity and his humility, Jacinta's purity and her humility, but she also saw hell. Yeah. So she has no time for demons. Yeah. And so demons flip out when they mention her name as well. So that's interesting. Wow. Yes? I'd be interested in your perspective about the child Jesus in the temple. Yes. Where Mary says, you know, your father and I were anxious. Yeah. Isn't that very interesting? So Mary says, your father and I were anxious, and the Lord says, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? So you see the two types of fatherhood there. God the Father, as well as the fatherhood of St. Joseph, and they're both being connected through Jesus. See, I believe, when it goes back to the earthly and heavenly trinity, I believe that that's the kind of connectivity, is through that, through Jesus in the temple. Just keep hearing, like, when I hear about Joseph's humility, is there, is there any sort of uh, connection with authority also with that, humility and authority? Is there anything like that? Absolutely. Well, this goes back to the whole notion of obedience, right? And so I think that's when... It seems like such an example of authentic... That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. No, it's very quiet. And I mean, some of the bishops that I know are the most humble bishops. One, one, a dear friend of mine who's a bishop, he, um, one time he knelt down to do benediction. He was doing his holy hour. He knelt down. He had holes in the bottom of his shoes. And we all just were like, oh. And he wasn't doing it on purpose. He just didn't buy his shoes. He was not concerned with earthly things. Other questions?